Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you in this preaching moment and all the days of our lives. Amen. Well, I'm excited to begin uh, our sermon series in the book of Daniel. We'll be walking through this book throughout the fall season right up until the end of November. And I mean, Daniel's this great book because on the one hand, it's a familiar story to many people. Uh, Chapters one through six are stories about Daniel and his friends who were taken, uh, they're Jewish and they're taken captivity into the land of Babylon in the sixth century BC. Uh, Lots of children's Bibles contain stories from this part of the book of Daniel, such as Daniel and the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, the three Jewish friends who were um, Uh, thrown into the fiery furnace, and God rescues them from that fate. But then you've got chapters 7 through 12, which turn out to be this puzzling array of uh, of visions which confuse lay readers and Bible scholars alike. Daniel, in these chapters, has visions of his own, which are uh, contain these strange creatures, which are part human and part beast. And tons of ink has been spilled Thousands of pages of commentary have debated the meanings of these visions over the years. But as strange as the second half of Daniel appears, it's clearly a unified whole that connects with the first half of the book. And as a whole, all the book of Daniel uh, communicates this important encouragement, that no matter what we are going through, no matter how confusing or how difficult, God is in control. God is just, God is good, and God is trustworthy. Did you catch that? God is in control. He is just, he is good, and he is trustworthy. I need to hear that. And more importantly, I need to be reminded that it is true. That is not just a concept, but that it's trustworthy. And that's why we're going to be starting this series in the book of Daniel, because it feels like the world is upside down right now, like injustice is running rampant, like civility has completely left the building. It feels like we're in danger of being controlled by our fears, real and imagined, rather than living by hope. And it feels like we're too easily slipping into lives of reaction instead of hopeful and purposeful and meaningful good action. Thankfully, Daniel, both the book and the man, can offer some encouragement and insight on how to flourish when you feel like you're living in exile. So let's dive right in and try and get a grip on what Daniel may have been experiencing. So first, just let me set the scene and give you some timeline and some dates so we can kind of picture when this is happening and what's going on in the world. So in 930 BC, Israel divided into two kingdoms, the nation of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south, which had Jerusalem and the temple as its capital. Now, after repeated idolatry and rebellion against God, the whole kingdom of Israel in the north was conquered and destroyed by Assyria in 722 BC. Now, fast forward nearly a century, and there were two dominant superpowers in the ancient Near East, Assyria to the northeast and Egypt to the southwest. All the little tribes and nations, including the Jews of Judah and Palestine, were in essence vassal states of one of these superpowers. And what that means is that 
all of these little nations were paying massive amounts of taxes to one of these superpowers, okay? And they were pledging their loyalty to either Assyria or Egypt. And so that was their master. They had to pledge their loyalty, but they were also offered some protection from one of those two superpowers. Now, the prophets warned Judah to trust Yahweh for deliverance and not to align themselves with either of these foreign powers. But as often happens, their faith wavered and they made a decision to choose Egypt. They were going to align themselves with Egypt, one of the oldest empires in world history. It seemed like a safe bet. But the balance of power began to shift, and in 612 BC, uh, a Babylonian king named Nabopolassar conquered Assyria, uh, at the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, and then he set his sights on expanding his empire. And he knew that his biggest threat was Egypt. And so he continuously battled with the Egyptians, and he fought them down into the area of Syria and Palestine, but they were too entrenched for him to fully defeat. When he died, his son Nebuchadnezzar took up his mantle as king and continued his mission to subdue Egypt, which he did at the Battle of Carchemish near modern-day Aleppo, Syria. Now, if you've ever played the game Risk or one of those strategy games where you've got nations and you're fighting against other people, you know that you don't want your enemies fortified right at your border. You kind of want a buffer between you and them. And that's what Israel and Palestine become for Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to fortify his borders while expanding his wealth and influence. So after pushing Egypt south, he conquered Judah, one of Egypt's allies. This is all recorded in 2 Kings 24, by the way. But in a nutshell, Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem and allowed Jehoiakim, the king, to remain there uh, in exchange for regular tribute money and loyalty. But after three years, Jehoiakim, who secretly remained um, loyal to Egypt, um, began to revolt. Well, when he rebels against Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar comes back to straighten things out. And this time, he was not messing around. He raided the temple of God, and he took the holy articles of gold and bronze and silver. He took money and fine linens, and he put them all into the temple of his god, Marduk, back in Babylon. But he didn't stop there. He took the king, and he took the king's most educated, capable, skilled, and noble subjects, and he dragged them back to Babylon, where they became exiles. The first wave of exiles included four young men, probably just barely teenagers. We're going to get to know them much better in the weeks to come, but their names are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now imagine for a moment the shock and disorientation of Daniel and his friends. These young men had not even been old enough to participate in the politics or rebellions or treachery or intrigue. They were young boys, still living at home with their families, going to school, practicing their faith openly and freely at home and in the temple. Their whole culture was Jewish. Hebrew was their spoken language. Their laws from personal ethics to marketplace economics were all based on Torah in the scripture. And above all, life was about living for the glory of Yahweh, the living God of all creation, and the one who chose Israel from among the nations to be a shining star pointing people back to God. And then, the most powerful army they had ever seen, a superpower really, 
sacks their kingdom, and hauls them back to Babylon. They are torn from their family. They're surrounded suddenly by people who speak Aramaic, not Hebrew. They smell the smells of different foods. The climate is different. The religion is different. The ethics are different. The geography is different. They're completely uprooted and forced to navigate a culture in which they are the disoriented minority. Talk about culture shock. But what we'll see throughout the book of Daniel is that Daniel and his friends end up thriving as exiles without compromising their faithfulness to God. And that's why this book has huge implications for us. It may seem like a stretch to say that you and I are exiles, especially after looking at the extreme exile that Daniel encountered. But just hear me out for a minute. The notion of being an exile is a fundamentally human experience. It has been ever since our original exile from the Garden of Eden. After our ancestors rebelled against God and were exiled from access to the Tree of Life, we have been struggling to find our place in the world. The easy example would be ethnic minorities in the United States. We are perhaps more aware than ever of the injustices against ethnic minorities in our country. We seem to be at a long overdue tipping point in our nation's history of recognizing the unjust power balance between entrenched whiteness and those who um, have more robust pigmentation. We're not talking about foreign immigrants. We are talking about generations of American citizens who just happen to be black or Asian or Latino or indigenous or East Indian. American citizens who feel on the outside looking in, who don't experience the same treatment as those of us who are white. But being an exile isn't just a racial thing or a gender issue. It's a human thing. It doesn't matter how privileged, how wealthy, how socially connected we are, because deep down, even before the pandemic, an increasing number of people report that they feel technologically connected, but lacking in true intimacy. There's a rise in loneliness, and with that, a rise in substance abuse and suicide. We know from Scripture that after the rebellion in the Garden, we have felt disconnected from God, from others, from the earth, and we've become hyper self-critical of ourselves. We are in so many ways walking exiles, whether or not we're the dominant population in a culture that we know very well, or whether or not we find ourselves as political refugees. So to be an exile is a human experience. But what about followers of Jesus? What about those who have a relatively strong relationship with God, who are connected to healthy Christian community, who know the Word of God, who serve God with their lives, who have come to understand that we're adopted by God as our Father? If we have Jesus, can we truly be in exile? Well, yes, absolutely, and maybe especially so. Paul says in some of his writings that this world is not our home. And he wasn't talking about this earth is not our home. Saying the world uh, in, in Paul's language and culture is another way of saying the power or culture set up around anything else than God. 
So the world, the way it is, is not our true home. The political structures, the way they are, is not our true home. The values so many uh, cultures espouse, they're not our true ethics and values. It's not our true home. In his first letter, Peter uh, writes to the followers of Jesus spread throughout the known world, and he calls them resident aliens. He knows that no matter what culture they're in, whether it's Greek or Roman or Syrian, followers of Jesus will always be, in fact, should always be, to some degree, at odds with the culture where it goes against the way of Jesus. In fact, if we don't feel some sort of disorientation or resistance between our faith in Jesus and our culture, we might just be doing it wrong. It's actually more effective to feel exile than it is just to nod in intellectual agreement that exile exists. So I want to ask a few questions of you to ponder, and you may want to revisit some of these later on. You may not feel too much like an exile, but consider this. Have you ever felt that you were deeply embarrassed in your own city, in your own culture, to share that you're a Christian in certain settings? Have you ever feared that you would be misunderstood because of your Christian faith? I mean, let's face it, it does not help that our own tribe, the church, um, hurts us through the, the stuff that's out on the media, the things that people say that don't represent Jesus well. Um, in some of the workplaces or recreational environments I've been in, it's really made me think twice about sharing my faith identity. And I'm very careful to make sure I have enough room to nuance everything just right so that people don't misunderstand where I'm coming from. We're living in a growing cancel culture. Rather than a place with true freedom of speech and sharing of ideas, there is a, a closing of the ideological window in which certain things are accepted and others are rejected outright without any kind of conversation. So if you differ with the majority view, you'll feel the wrath of social hatred and in some professions like academia or political office, your career could be over, it could be threatened. So what do we do? One option is to assimilate. Do we just go along with the waves of the majority, adopting the spirit of the age without thinking critically? Do we allow our experience and our emotions and popular opinion to change our ideas and practices more than scripture does? Or, on the other extreme, do we circle the wagons, so to speak, and insulate ourselves from culture? Do we withdraw and only spend time with people who think like us and send our kids to schools that support our specific ideology and simply wait and hunker down for Jesus to return? A third option I'm seeing more and more is resisting cultural trends by using the weapons of culture itself. Far too many self-proclaimed followers of Jesus have sought power through lies and bullying and coercion, thus giving up the core of the gospel that Jesus is setting up a different kingdom altogether, and that he's calling us to live by a different set of ethics, like sacrifice and humility and love and compassion and purity and holiness and faith in Jesus. 
Far too many Christians have tried to fight power with power by joining in the far right or the far left while not realizing that Jesus isn't supporting either of those camps. He's got his own party. He's got his own kingdom. And that's the one that we're supposed to put above all else. So what are we to do? What does it mean to not only be an exile, but to find a way of flourishing in exile? Well, that is what the whole book of Daniel will unfold in the weeks to come. But let me just leave us with two takeaways to ponder until we really get started next week in chapter one. First of all, Daniel invites us to embrace God's sovereignty. His, that means his total supervision of all of history. It is not surprising to God that Daniel is in exile. It is not surprising to God that we are in a pandemic right now. It is not surprising to him that if we follow him, it will put us at odds with whatever culture we live in. Daniel chapter 1 covers nearly seven decades of history, from Nebuchadnezzar's rise to Babylon's fall and the rise of Cyrus, the Persian king. Kings come and go, and empires rise and fall. But do you know what's consistent throughout the book of Daniel? Daniel outlives them all. God is faithful. And that doesn't mean that everything is going to be easy, but it does mean that we can trust God for justice and a future that is better than the ones that we can conjure up in our imagination. Second, building on that firm foundation of God's sovereignty and His goodness, we can then live into our calling to be a blessing wherever God has us. So part of our scripture reading today was from Genesis 12. It's God's call on Abraham and Sarah, promising them that He was going to bless them so that they could then be a blessing to all the nations. Jesus picks up on this in John 17, and he declares to the Father in one of his greatest prayers that he doesn't want to take us disciples out of the world. Far from it. He wants to put us in the world as his representatives, even though we are not of the world. As we remain firmly encouraged in God's care for us and firmly rooted in Jesus' call on us, we can practice being a blessing to others in the power of the Spirit. Not through worldly power, not through coercion, not through withdrawals from culture altogether, but through faith we point to Jesus with our love, generosity, kindness, wisdom, simplicity, and integrity, and when we screw up with great humility and humility in trusting Jesus. Lord, help us to receive the good news of your kingdom coming for sure, the good news of your sovereignty and your goodness and your control over all the situation, and help us to live into the power of your spirit that enables us to flourish even when living in exile. Amen.